Hello everyone, welcome back to the podcast. It has been a little bit since I've done an episode and I apologize. Uh, Today we're going to uh, be discussing the book The Jungle by Upton Sinclair. Uh, This was a book that I taught many, many times as a college professor to my students and had them write papers on it. Um, We analyzed this book from uh, all of the different perspectives, feminist, Marxist, cultural, psychological, um, being the main ones. Uh, I'm going to stick to mainly doing um, sort of a Marxist cultural perspective on this book. Um, I'm doing this without the benefit of the book in front of me. It's a fairly long book. If I actually used the book and gave you lots of passages, uh, this podcast would end up being four hours for this episode. So I'm going to try to hit just hit some of the highlights and hit some of the main points. Now, when Sinclair wrote The Jungle, he approached it like a journalist. He lived in the stockyards of Chicago in 1905-1906 for about six weeks when he was writing the book, or researching the book, I should say. Um, He interviewed the people, talked to the workers, talked to the managers, uh, basically tried to get as much of the life in as he could. Now, when he wrote this, this is a work of fiction. The family that he uh, describes and follows one character in particular through the book, Yurgis, uh, this is all fictional. But none of the things that he talks about are fictional. These are real conditions that real people experienced. So while he fictionalized the characters, he did not fictionalize uh, the way things were. One of the things that, uh, when this first came out, most people couldn't believe it, um, and it was actually investigated. Um, independently. People went to Chicago investigators to try to, really they went to try to disprove him, to say that he was lying, he was exaggerating, and what they ended up finding out was he wasn't lying or exaggerating, and almost every single thing that he talks about in the book, conditions-wise, they were able to independently verify. Uh, The only thing they were never able to verify Um, was he does have a passage where he talks about, you know, people falling into the vat and being turned into lard. Um, This was never able to be verified, uh, especially in that time period. Now they could have tested the vats to see if there were any traces of human DNA. Back then that wasn't an option. So unless you actually saw it or had somebody that was willing to come forward and testify, that would have been pretty hard to prove anyways. Um, He wrote the book with the intention of discussing the treatment of the workers. That was his main focus. He wanted to show how the workers were being treated, uh, the conditions they were working under, the conditions they were, be- they were living under. And when the book came out, everyone only thought about how gross it was, the f- what they were eating. Um, his quote about the book was that he aimed for people's hearts and hit them in the stomach. And in fact, no labor reforms came about because of the book. Um, The Pure Food and Drug Act was passed uh, in response to the book, which tried to address some of the issues with the food. Um, One of the reasons that I always taught this book, and one of the challenges I gave my students, was that as we talked about different things that were going on then, I challenged them to research the present and see if these are issues that have been resolved and we've moved on from here, 
or if these are issues that we are still uh, dealing with today very much. And one of the things that as you go through the book, and if you do some research, you will find that pretty much everything he talks about in this book is still something we're dealing with. Um, the book itself starts out with a wedding, and it kind of is one of a, it's a rarity for its time period because it's not part of the modernist period, and yet it does have um, part of it that is out of order. Um, they start uh, with a wedding in America, and then after that chapter, they move backwards to before they came to America, uh, working through the timeline until they get uh, past the wedding and then what happens after. Uh, this kind of moving around in the timeline really isn't very common until you get to the modernist era, which really doesn't take place for about another 15, 20 years. So this is kind of, even from a literary perspective, something that's a little bit ahead of its time. Um, <clears throat> but he, the reason he wanted to start with a wedding, uh, I believe, is that he wanted to show these were good people. So he shows you these people when they're um, still sort of hopeful and good uh, because there's a tendency in that time period and pretty much in every time period including today to demonize the poor you know the poor are often dismissed you know if it wasn't for the fact that you were uh, bad people doing bad things maybe you wouldn't be in poverty and Sinclair with this novel really wants to show that these people didn't start out as bad people, even though a lot of them end up as criminals and prostitutes and things like that. Um, this was very much against the way they were raised. This was very much against who they were. And it was the conditions in the, of poverty and the need to survive that kind of pushes them into this. <clears throat> One of the characters we see in the beginning, uh, in the first chapter, is Maria. And Maria in this chapter is very much um, a strong woman. She's very uh, much got her act together. She's very upstanding and moral. She's a very good person. Um, she's a person who's used to hard work. Uh, she didn't come from a life of luxury and pleasure. She came from a life of having to work from the time she was a child um, from Lithuania. Uh, which is where this family is originally from. Um, as the book goes on, uh, we eventually see Maria uh, getting married, uh, or trying to get married, um, because of hardships, not being able to. Uh, the husband, or fiancé, I should say, eventually is out of the picture, and Maria is forced into prostitution just to not only survive for herself, but to be able to feed the children um, that aren't even her children. They're her nieces and nephews. Um, but she is um, willing to kind of uh, completely destroy her own life in order to put food on the table. And this is one of the things that, as I said, happens even up through the present time. You know, people will look at people who are uh, in, in gangs or selling drugs or... Uh, into prostitution or other things like this, and they will say, well, these must just be bad, evil people. Um, and people go into things sometimes because uh, it's the easy way, but often they go into it because they 
don't usually see having many other options. Um, if you don't have a lot of options and you have to eat and you want to live inside, uh, you're pretty much going to do what you have to do. Um, and as far as drug usage, this is even kind of um, portrayed in there with Maria. She starts out someone who really isn't even a drinker, and by the time she's uh, a prostitute, she's also heavily on drugs. Uh, and this is one of the things that um, is sometimes common uh, when people's lives become so horrible, the only relief and release that they get uh, comes in the form of uh, drugs. So Sinclair's reasoning behind the way he sets this up, all of these people are very good, very hardworking, basically people you think should be living the American dream, people who are worthy of living the American dream. They're the immigrants that come across the ocean. Um, they're hardworking where they came from. Their idea is we're going to work hard and we're going to get ahead and we're going to have a house and the children are going to go to school. You know, very much the American dream. Um, and what ends up happening is they end up becoming basically ground up in the system. Uh, even as they're, when it starts to talk about them coming into Chicago, um, the closer they get to Chicago, the worse things in the environment are. The less there's any green. Everything becomes mud and dirt and dust and gray. And, um, uh, and this is something you very much see as you move into industrial areas to this day. You know, the people that live in industrial areas are often living in places where you have a high levels of pollution um, from uh, the factories that are around. You have uh, a lot of dilapidated buildings. Uh, you have a lot of um, spaces that have been abandoned. And this is kind of what they're seeing as they're coming in. But they're still determined as they're coming in to make a go of this. <clears throat> And they end up getting work right away. And as they're working and working under these horrible conditions that they're describing, they start to talk to some of the other people and find out what's going on. One of the things that the meatpacking industry back then uh, was fond of doing was bringing in workers from all different parts of the world. So they would bring in workers from Germany. And once the workers from Germany decided they wanted better working conditions and more money and would start to try to form unions and try to bargain for a better way of life, um, they would go to another country of people that didn't speak the same language, Ireland, for example. And then they would bring in the Irish um, to be workers and basically just throw all the Germans out. Uh, and then the Irish, when they would get to where they would want... Um, you know, be tired of the horrible conditions and the horrible pay uh, and start to think about more money, then they'd bring in someone, you know, people from Poland. Or uh, in this case, we're kind of dealing with the, the wave of people from Lithuania. Now, the meatpacking industry did improve for a little while. Uh, it did become a middle-class job and was... Um, uh, was a way of making a decent living. But this is after this time period, and this is after the rise of unions. You know, these become good union jobs where the people are making a decent wage that they can not only survive, but 
um, you know, own a home, uh, send their children to school. Uh, and this starts to be eroded as the unions are eroded. Um, by the time you get out of the 70s and 80s, it's pretty much gone back to what it was. Uh, if you look at different things about uh, different stories you can find about the meatpacking industry now, um, there are workers are largely um, uh, illegal immigrants. They're people that are not here legally. Uh, and they do this intentionally. Um, they bring these people in, they lure them in from Mexico and Central America so that they can pay them a lower wage, so they don't have to pay their retirement, um, so they don't have to pay them if they get hurt on the job. Uh, one of the things that happens is if somebody gets hurt on the job, <clears throat> an American worker gets hurt on the job, a citizen, the employer has to pay for it. Um, they're liable for those medical bills. If this person is illegal, the companies will often turn the person over to immigration services and the person will be deported. Um, also, if there's any even hints of or, or rumors that the workers might want more money, um, there, there have been raids by immigration that take part of the workforce and deport them out of the country. Um, they don't take all of the illegals. They only take part of them. If they took all of them, then it would shut down production. Basically, the ones that get left behind are left behind with the message of straighten up and don't ask for anything or you'll be the next one getting kicked out of the country. So in the treatment of workers and in the condition of workers, um, we really find when you start to research it that we are right back where we started, um, that these people are making barely enough to survive, if that, and often under that amount. They're using a lot of immigrant labor because they can afford to get around um, paying them as much. Um, this is one of the reasons that you know people talk about illegal immigration and they say, why do these people keep coming here? Because large companies want them. Large companies want them uh, so that they have that to hold over their head, that they're illegal, act up, you can be deported at any time, and they can get away with paying them less than minimum wage sometimes, or very close to it. Whereas if they used uh, people who were here as citizens, they couldn't get away with that low level of pay. So we see that the working conditions have not improved. They're long hours for almost no pay, and basically it's like a machine. The workers get chewed up and spit out, and they just get more. Uh, there's always more immigrants looking to come in and get these jobs. And so there's a steady stream coming in. Uh, and during the time of the jungle, they brought them in from Europe. Now they bring them in from Mexico and Central America. So that part hasn't changed at all. <clears throat> Another thing that um, you will see in the book is they see an advertisement to get a house because at first they're staying in these kind of uh, communal housing where it's it's a bunch of people renting a room and far too many people in one room. Uh, the people will have 15, 20, 30 people in a room that should have, you know, at the most three or four people in that room. Uh, so they get the idea that they can buy a house a new house and the price of the house you know they can get a loan and they figure out how much they're making and they realize 
they can afford this, um, barely, but they can afford it if they work hard uh, and send the kids to work because in this time period there were no child labor laws at all. Now we still have child labor laws, but there are people that are working to get rid of those um, that want to be able to have 14 and 15 year olds uh, working eight hour days again or more. Um, so the family decides to get this house and it turns out after they've been there and do a little research what they were told was a new house is not a new house. It's basically a house where they patched some holes, um, painted it a little bit and passed it off as a new house. And what the finance companies were doing is the same thing that the subprime mortgage companies were doing. They were writing loans to these people that they knew would lose the property. They would put it right into the mortgage that as soon as you miss one payment, you're out. Uh, and they knew, odds are, these people weren't going to be able to make every single payment. Eventually there would be slowdowns at work, somebody would get sick, somebody would get injured, uh, they would miss a payment, and then they could throw the people out um, and then sell the house, throw a little bit of paint on it, sell the house over again as a brand new house to the next family. And this way they basically were able to keep selling the same house over and over again. Nobody ever got to the point where they owned it. Um, they would all end up eventually out in the streets. This is what was happening with the subprime mortgages. Uh, mortgage companies were writing mortgages to people they knew would never be able to afford the house. They were putting in um, clauses that if the person missed a payment or was late on a payment, the interest rate would go way up. Or after a certain amount of time, the interest rates would balloon. And basically this was a way of getting these people to make a lot of payments on a house, taking that house back, and then selling it to the next family. But what happened in the mortgage crisis is too many of these houses um, went uh, into foreclosure at the same time and there was nobody to buy these houses. So the banks ended up starting to get stuck with them and losing money and not able to sell them. So we see the housing uh, uh, exploitation that's going on in the jungle it is something else that still really hasn't been addressed because once the housing industry was bailed out, um, there were no real regulations thrown on them to keep it from happening again. And a lot of these companies have gone right back to doing the same kind of thing. Knowing that if the bottom does fall out though, uh, the government will pull them out of it and bail them out. Um, another uh, thing that the book discusses uh, is the uh, conditions the food are under which the food is made. Um, there's basically no standards. Um, the FDA inspectors, when they come in, um, are shown only the, the uh, processed animals that will pass. Uh, as soon as the inspector leaves, they'll bring in shifts of other people to process the diseased meat and then hide it in with the rest of it. And we keep having these incidents over and over again where because of lax inspections uh, and because of you know, poor conditions in the plants, uh, we keep having food recalls because some uh, you know, botulism will get spread over the meat or some other toxin. 
um, and people will start getting sick and they have to recall it. And this has to do with the fact that, again, they're using uh, less than sanitary conditions. They're using workers that are being worked far beyond what they should be worked. Uh, and they're paying people to look the other way. Uh, one of the things that has happened is that the government has really gutted the FDA as far as enforcement ability. Um, the FDA really has had all of its enforcement ability stripped away. Um, another issue that was being talked about in the jungle was the large amount of chemical additives that were used. And these chemicals um, were often toxic chemicals, uh, but they were used to cover up the fact that meat was spoiled uh, and things like that. Uh, so they had all of these uh, chemicals that were being used that were not very uh, beneficial to the people eating them, uh, let alone to the people working with these chemicals all day. Uh, if you look at the ingredients on just about anything you buy, you're going to find a huge list of chemicals. And there are people that are trying to make the argument, well, chemicals are chemicals. Uh, this is not exactly true. If I have two glasses and one of them has H2O, pure H2O, and the other one has pure H2O2, uh, there's only one of those that I would drink. I'll drink the H2O, but the H2O2 in pure form would absolutely kill you. Uh, H2O2 is hydrogen peroxide, and the stuff you get in the bottle at the, uh, you know, the drugstore, uh, that's like a 0.1% concentration, uh, and it's that strong. Most of what's in there is uh, water in the bottle you use. Now imagine if that was 100% concentration, it would basically boil out your insides if you tried to drink it. Um, and it's chemicals are chemicals, right? They're both hydrogen and oxygen. No, they're not the same. Uh, this is this is one of the things that is thrown off as a truism, uh, but when you hold it up to scrutiny, you realize that it doesn't really hold water. Uh, this is like people saying, well, it's all natural. It must be good for you. Arsenic is all natural. It is not good for you. Uh, botulism is all natural. It's not good for you. Uh, e. coli is all natural. It's not good for you. So just because something is all natural does not mean that it is good for you. Um, but this is the ways that we're fooled with advertising. And you start to see in the jungle too, there's a lot of advertising that they get bombarded with. All of these products that they want people to buy. Um, we think that being bombarded with advertisement is something new that we've just had to deal with in the digital age, but this is really something that goes much further back. Uh, it really goes to, you know, the beginnings of mass printings. People are able to print billboards, uh, print uh, flyers and put them up, print advertisements in newspapers. Um, so again, we have this push for things that are not necessarily good for you, uh, and we have a large push on advertising. Now another issue that comes up in the book, you see they have an advertisement that they come across that offers to um, uh, sell them all of the furniture they need to furnish their home. And you don't have to have the money all at once. Uh, you can put a small amount down and make a small monthly payment. 
And in the book it talks about the fact that if what they don't tell you is that if you just make the small monthly payment, you're paying many, many times what that furniture is actually worth. Were you to buy that furniture with cash, it would be about, you know, a sixth to a tenth the price. Um, and if this sounds familiar, this is basically the concept of the rent-to-own places uh, in particular, but also in particular the credit card industry. You know, when you buy something on credit, you are basically paying a lot more for that product than what it's worth unless you have the money to pay it off as soon as the bill comes. Now, everyone has good intentions and says, yes, I'm going to use this only in emergencies and then as soon as the bill comes, I'll get my paycheck, I will pay this bill off. Very few people are actually able to stick to that and this is why we have people with tens of thousands of dollars of debt in credit cards. So we have that issue that is unresolved and still bad to this day. You know, we go through the book in the class, and, and I encourage you to pick up the book and read the book. Uh, it's, a, it's a fairly long book, but it is well written. It is a bit gruesome in parts, um, but uh, Sinclair is a good writer, um, and he does manage to uh, sort of create characters that you can empathize with, even though these characters kind of go through um, a destruction of who they are. The main character that the book follows, Jurgis, uh, he's the one that's getting married in the beginning, um, ends up losing his wife uh, in, child, in, in the birth of their second child. Uh, his only surviving son ends up drowning, um, and he kind of goes off and becomes uh, a drunk and a criminal, and he kind of falls into that lifestyle. Um, this is something that... Um, in a lot of people in this in that in situation would have ended up basically dead or in prison. Um, Sinclair uh, wanted to kind of put forth a little bit different idea. So one of the things that happens at the end of uh, the jungle is Jurgis kind of wanders into a union meeting and starts getting involved in the union movement. Uh, and this is kind of Sinclair sort of giving you what's wrong with everything and a little bit of a nudge towards uh, what might be a possible solution for everything. So I'm going to cut this off for here. As I said, this is why I tried to do this without having the book in front of me. Otherwise, I'd have another two, three hours to go and we wouldn't even be out of chapter two yet. Um, so I hope all of you get a chance to pick up that book. Um, I hope you as you read it and you look at things, you kind of pause and think about, you know, how much does this reflect uh, the world we still live in? You know, how little progress have we actually made between 1906 and 2020? Okay, I will talk to you all again soon. Uh, I hope you all are well and staying safe, and I will talk to you in a little bit.